the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I speak to Robert Bezwes Diner. Robert is known as the Indiana Jones of positive psychology. He is a psychologist, researcher, trainer, and author. He is particularly interested in positive topics such as well-being, social support, and courage. Even though there are person-to-person differences in courage, Robert believes that it is a trainable skill. He has conducted workshops with Queensland Police, Australia Department of Defence, and Standard Chartered Bank, amongst many others. He also trains coaches in how to assess risk and be appropriately vulnerable. In this episode, we discuss courage as a combination of skill and mindset, how people can thrive when they develop the ability to face fear and take strategic and sensible risks, mindfulness in action, and much more. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. So, Robert, here's my first question for you. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? Uh, That's a great question, Rodney. Um, It's actually something I've been thinking about recently. I'm an American, and I just heard American culture described as fundamentally self-reliant. And so I've been thinking about it in terms of my own cultural identity, um, and really this idea that this kind of frontier mentality, right, that, that people were able to grow their own crops and make and mend their own clothes and that they really just had the skills, the confidence, the optimism to provide for themselves and live their own life and not totally divorced from all other people, you know, not that they refused help from others, but they just this kind of can do spirit and skill set is what comes to mind for me. You know, I agree with you. That's, that's exactly how I see it. It's a really good entryway into some of the points we said we would talk about. This definitely talks to self-reliance. So one, talk to me about your passion for rock climbing. I'm assuming it's a passion. You have to have a passion to want to do that. And then, you know, once we, we get that out the way, let's kind of dive into some of the mindset behind rock climbing, which I think is very useful and can definitely be applied in everyday life. Yeah, let me uh, just say to anyone who's listening that I'm a very mediocre rock climber. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm completely average in every way. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, reasonably fit. I have decent technique. I have some basic skills, but I don't want people to think that I'm, you know, out there doing something, you know, that, that's jaw dropping. You know, I'm, I'm definitely a recreational climber. I go outside climbing every week. I took it up um, actually as a parenting strategy when my son became a teenager. I decided to take up any sport he took up because I thought that if I engaged in his sports, he would want to hang out. 
And I definitely had my fingers crossed, like, please don't take up American football or, you know, something like that. That would hockey, you know, I don't know how to ice skate. <laughs> um, I took up skiing and rock climbing. And so I became a skier and a rock climber. Um, and rock climbing turned out to be amazing in part because it's a flow activity. Um, you know, when, you're, when your skill and your challenge level are optimally matched and you, you just get absorbed in the activity and lose track of time. Well, Mike Sheik sent Mahai, the, the researcher who came up with the idea of flow and studied it, he himself was a rock climber. And that's one of the reasons why he was able to, to come up with this idea. Um, I just have found it to be amazing. It's a chance to get out into nature. It's a chance to test yourself. It feels like a growth opportunity and overcoming personal challenge. It's also, with some notable exceptions, something that you almost can't do by yourself. You need someone on the other end of the rope to catch you if you fall. So even at the same time that it's such a personal challenge, it requires trust and cooperation. Um, and I've been quite proud of my son. I mentioned this as an opportunity to connect with him. It, as a parenting strategy, it totally works that, you know, every week, every weekend, you know, I was skiing with he and his friends. I was climbing with them. And um, to this day, you know, he, he just called me, you know, he's an adult now, but he called me and he said, oh, I've got this great climb I think we can do as a father-son trip next summer, you know, and, and that's really, uh, to me, like the jackpot, like that, that I instilled in him this kind of passion. Yeah, that's beautiful. So one of the things that I know you mentioned to me was that, you know, when we're talking about rock climbers, they have a very unique approach to thinking about problems. So maybe you can speak to that. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so one of the things, the things that most captivates me is called um, a crux focus. So just in case people are not themselves rock climbers, I'll tell you the crux is the hardest part of a climb. So imagine standing at the bottom of a cliff face and looking up a uh, hundred feet or 30 meters with whichever system of measurement you use. And you know that some portion of that is going to be really, really tough. And what elite rock climbers do is they focus on that hardest portion called the crux. Now, I think that's interesting because it's such a usable metaphor for the rest of life because they're not worried, how am I going to establish on the wall in the beginning? How am I going to do the first three or four moves? How's it going to be, you know, at the very top where the terrain eases up considerably? They're not worried about that stuff and they spend almost no time looking at it. They focus exactly on where the biggest problem and challenge is. And when I think about the way that people interface with challenge in real life, I think we have a tendency to view it all as a problem at work and hobbies and relationships. You know, oh, you've got this new project at work. Well, it's all overwhelming, but it's not. Only a portion of it is. And by narrowing your focus just to the crux, just the part that's that you don't know if you can do, it allows you to focus all of your attention there without worrying about the lesser problems because you know that when you arrive at them, you'll be able to navigate them just fine. So when they're focusing on the crux, I mean, how are they approaching that? Because obviously, unless they've done that climb before, they're not really going to know what they're going to encounter, right? So there has to be some kind of preemptive work before we even get to that point. I mean, outside of having the ability, you hope, to actually get past that obstacle, you still need to do some things before you even get there to help you manage yourself more effectively when you actually find yourself there. It's such an astute question, Rodney. Um, so they do three things. 
The first thing they do is called previewing. And again, all of these, I believe, are great metaphors. So you can stand at the bottom of the rock face and you can kind of read the terrain. You know, oh, if there's a giant overhanging roof, that's probably going to be tougher than the flat part, right? Um, so they can preview an entire climb, sort of looking to the best of their ability from the ground. Where is it going to be tough? Where is it not going to be tough? Again, I think we sort of do this in real life. If you're a you know, public speaker, for example, you want to go to the space ahead of time, see what it's going to be like. You're sort of previewing the experience before you have to live the experience. And I think that that can be a big confidence booster. You know what to expect. In addition to previewing, climbers also do something called social processing. That is, even competitive climbers, and yes, there is competitive climbing, um, even competitive climbers tend to talk about the, the climbing problem, the climbing route, with other people, either other people that can read the route well or people who've climbed the route. Mm -hmm. So they do a lot of this social processing, like, oh, you climbed it before. What did you do there? Did you reach with your right hand or your left hand? What kind of movement was it? You know, how difficult did you think it would be? So they, they definitely solicit the expert and experienced opinion of other people they trust. And then the final thing um, is they have a, a, a balanced focus. And by this, I mean, they don't just focus on the problem. They also focus on themselves. So sort of like, yeah, I know that that's going to be a really tough part, but am I well rested? Am I optimistic? Have I eaten? Am I mentally sharp? And they balance their focus between focusing on the problem and what they themselves are bringing to the problem. All three of those things, I think, are terrific uh, techniques that all of us can employ almost across the board, you know, regardless of if you're a climber or not. Yeah, absolutely. I can see that's totally usable. Kind of reminds me a little bit of stoicism there, you know, like kind of thinking about the worst possible place you can find yourself in. And then thinking about contingency plans, right? If things don't go the way that I want them to go, this is how I'm going to approach it. Yeah, because it, you know that, you know, whether you're taking a, a chemistry class at university or whether you're starting a new job, there will be a worst possible place within that context. Maybe the worst possible place for chemistry is the final exam. Mm. But you know that showing up and attending class isn't a problem. You know, taking notes isn't a problem. Maybe the reading is a little bit difficult, but really it's the final exam that's going to be the tough one, right? So you just spend time thinking about that worst possible scenario because that's going to be the real challenge. And you sort of let yourself off the hook for the other stuff because it's, it's not as challenging. I think also one of the things we can talk about that I believe ties into this, you know, especially when we're talking about rock climbing, we can use that as a metaphor as well for life. But you're looking at this obstacle, you realize that there's going to be that challenge point that you're going to have to overcome. There's this aspect of courage, right? You have to have the courage to put yourself in there and actually do it. So I know that you definitely like this topic as well. So talk to us about courage. Maybe let's start, first of all, what do we mean by courage? What is a, def what is a definition that we could use here? Sure. Um, you know, I don't have a monopoly on the truth in terms of, you know, definitions of these concepts, but I've, I've certainly written quite a bit about it. So I have some thoughts. First, let me disabuse listeners to the idea that courage is the absence of fear. That, that is not courage. And in fact, the absence of fear tends to be a pretty unhealthy thing, right? Fear is a pretty good signal. It helps you survive. Um, courage is the ability to act 
despite fear for a worthwhile cause. So I add that for a worthwhile cause because you could say, well, you know, imagine a, a, a stick up artist, you know, a mugger on the street, you know, you know, they're probably afraid they're acting anyway, but it's not really a worthwhile cause to steal your money. So really, you know, running into a burning building to save someone, uh, something like that, but it's not even always physical, right? There, there's mental and social courage. You know, you think about someone who's afraid of public speaking, as I mentioned, which is a very common public fear. Um, someone who's afraid of getting on an airplane, like they're, they're afraid, but if they act anyway, then that's a, I think, courage, the ability to act despite fear for a worthwhile cause. Yeah, that's succinct. And I think that's a, that's a worthy definition. Just thinking while you were saying that, though, one of the things, and I'd like to get your take on this, maybe a little bit, uh, it's off topic, but I still think it's, it's related to it. You know, making that move, we're, we're, like moving towards a worthwhile cause, I think is important. But there's still this aspect of dealing with what is going on inside or dealing with the way that you're thinking, your sensations, your feelings. I think that's where a lot of people trip themselves up. One of the things I've been talking about lately is that your state, talking about your inner state, really is a predictor of your fate and that we spend little or no time actually trying to learn how to manage that state effectively. In fact, what I see most people do is they try to move as quickly away from it as they possibly can. You know, for example, where you said, you know, courage isn't the, the absence of fear. It's having that fear, but still moving towards the target or the goal that you've put in front of yourself, right? And so there's an aspect there that you still have to overcome that fear. You have to overcome your the physiology that you're feeling in that moment and time. And that really talks to this idea of managing your inner state. I mean, what is your perspective on that? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a, a great point. And I do think, especially when it comes to courage, there are sort of two separate processes. One is you've got some fear, so you can try and manage the fear, tamp down the fear, or you can just let the fear be, you know, and not, not push it down at all. And you can just try and boost your willingness to act. Those are two separable processes, right? So, you know, imagine someone, again, they're afraid of getting on an airplane. And so they want to lower their fear because they feel anxious. So maybe they pray or maybe they have a glass of alcohol, right? Those are strategies that might diminish their fear without really boosting their willingness to act. Or maybe they just accept their fear and say, yeah, I'm going to sweat this one out, kind of white knuckle it, you know, and that's going to be uncomfortable, but I'm going to boost my willingness to, to suffer through that by reminding myself how important this trip is that I'm going to go see my family or it's a business trip. It, it's connected with my values and that's, you know, boosting the willingness to act. So, so you really have two separable strategies to work on. In general, I think you're right. People are, are quite divorced from uncomfortable emotions. When we feel guilt or fear or sadness, we, we don't like it. It just kind of feels icky and people want to avoid it. But mostly I think that, that those serve good informational functions. You know, when, when you're afraid, I'm typically uh, encouraging of people to ask, what is this fear telling me? What, what is this fear? If this fear had an agenda, what does this fear want me to do? Because a lot of times your fear is accurate. If you're walking alone at night, a little bit of trepidation makes some sense, right? And that it's just saying, hey, be vigilant, be on your guard. 
in the case of, you know, getting on a plane, it could just be biological, like, hey, we shouldn't be way up in the sky, you know, that that's an okay feeling. And so I encourage people to accept their feelings and to listen to their feelings, but not necessarily to let their feelings command them. Mm. So just literally, I think probably a week ago, I, I did this um, session at this event called Mindful Man. So I'm right now I'm, I'm locked down on, on the Isle of Man during COVID. This is kind of where I've landed up and I'm with my, with my partner. So it's not a bad thing. And Isle of Man is a beautiful place. But in that session, I was really trying to bring across this idea of learning to manage your state more effectively. And really what I was driving into was that exactly as you said, that everything that you feel, all these things that you are labeling, you know, whatever that emotion may be, and oftentimes we always seem to look for the worst, right? It, it serves an adaptive process. It's there for a specific reason. And rather than trying to somehow change that in itself, one of the ways that you can do it is you can go deeper. So for example, I did a lot of work on that session, working with people, getting them to focus on breathing, and specifically the outbreath and teaching them how to communicate with the autonomic nervous system more effectively. So as we know, right, when people are in an anxious state or they afraid, the thing that's going to kick off part of the autonomic nervous system is called the sympathetic nervous system. That's that fight and flight response. We can also maybe talk about that. We can make an argument that most people's sympathetic nervous system is running hot all the time, just in daily life and how we interact with stress. And so if we can learn to engage the parasympathetic nervous system, which is our calming state, that really changes how we then relate to those feelings and, and those sensations. And in that respect, maybe how we labeled emotions in the past as being negative, we start to label them in a different way. So we have more granularity. We see emotions more on a flexible scale rather than saying good and bad. And I think that's where people kind of trip themselves up. When they're talking about emotions, it's either black or white and they don't see that actually there is a wide spectrum along that continuum between, you know, happiness and fear, you know, there, there's frustration, there's, there's, and so on and so on. So I think you could probably speak to that because you've done a lot of work in that area too. Yeah, it's, it's great. So, so I like what you're saying uh, about the nervous system, because really what you're promoting is a physiological intervention. If, if we can control the body through things like breathing or, you know, the nervous system, you know, impulses, then you can have an, an upstream effect on your emotions. And I think that's 100% correct. I also think we can kind of do something downstream, which is if you can change your thinking. And of course, I'm a psychologist, so I'm inclined to think this way you can also affect your emotions. And one way to do that is through something called emotion differentiation. And so let me just say that with respect to negative and positive emotions, when we label those as psychologists, there's no value judgment. We're not saying good and bad emotions. We're, we're just talking about like the positive and negative side of a battery. No one thinks we're saying the good side of the battery or the bad side of the battery. They are just saying there's two different sides. And so you have some emotions that are kind of unpleasant, frustration, boredom, sadness, anger. And then you have some that are pleasant, enthusiasm, eagerness, anticipation, joy, love. And you don't experience one emotion at a time. So the way emotion differentiation works is that you parse apart your emotional experience. Say, oh, I'm about to go into a business meeting where I feel unprepared. 
what is my emotional state? And you might just say, I'm apprehensive. Well, that's great. That, that, that's, you have a good vocabulary if you can come up with a word like apprehensive, but it's probably not all you're feeling. And you might think, well, I'm actually feeling a little guilty too because I'm unprepared and that's my fault. So I'm apprehensive and guilty. What else are you? I'm also worried, worried that it won't go well because of this. And as soon as you start labeling and parsing it apart, apprehensive, worried, and guilty, it feels less overwhelming and toxic. You still feel bad. You just kind of relax into that bad feeling. You don't feel like running away from it. You feel like, oh yeah, okay, now I just kind of understand it. it it's a really simple technique. Like just it, when I'm feeling badly, can I parse this into two or three distinct emotional states? It does require, however, that people have a pretty robust vocabulary and a little bit of self-awareness. But it's, it's amazing if you try it, that it really just sort of takes the, that overwhelming edge off your emotional state. As you were saying that, I was thinking about, I'm just trying to recall who the researcher was. You might know, but if not, I can always put it in the, in the notes of the, you know, of the session that we're talking about. But there was some research to suggest that by labeling your emotions is exactly what you're saying. And by labeling them, you take that edge off, right? That's, that's in essence what, what, what you are suggesting somebody should do. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look, um, and if you want the research, I can give it to you later. But for example, US college students who are good at parsing apart their emotions like this, they drink fewer servings of alcohol every month, which I think is interesting, right? They're essentially not using alcohol to manage their emotions. If you look at people at work, people who have a quick temper at work, but can do this skill, act out less aggressively. That is, they, they're less likely to slam doors, pound their fists, knock something off a table, yell. And people who are poor at differentiating their emotions are, are more likely to act out aggressively at work. It just turns out it's not, gonna, it's not gonna make you any less frustrated or angry or irritated, but it's gonna make you more in control of those feelings. That just makes intuitive sense to me because if, coming back to what I said, where people have a tendency to want to ignore or run away from how they are feeling. If you're doing that, then you really never know how you're feeling, right? You never know exactly what your state is. And so as you start labeling that state, not only do you get better at understanding, as you noted that there is a spectrum here, it's not just one side and the other, that just by getting keyed in on actually how you're feeling, you start interpreting events completely different as well. And I think that's very powerful. Absolutely. The, the metaphor I always use is just going to the gym, you know, something people can relate to. Every time you have an emotional experience that you're in contact with, that you sit in, that you try and tolerate and accept and listen to, it's like going to the gym and flexing those muscles. And if you don't go to the gym, well, then you're not going to be very strong in that particular area. If we come back to rock climbing, the times that you've obviously climbed, there must have been moments where you looked at the climb and you were, wow, I don't know, <laughs> can I actually do this, right? And so, you know, one side, we, we talked about, you know, learning to manage your state, but as you said, you're a psychologist, so you're also interested in how your, your quote unquote, your thinking mind can change the way that you approach situations and how you manage your, your inner state. What strategies have you personally found that works really well for you? 
Sure. I mean, I can tell you this uh, from last Wednesday. There's a, a climb I've been working on for a year. Not not every day for a year, um, you know, because here where I live, there's a climbing season. It rains most of the year. So we just have these, you know, windows of climbing. Um, and it's scary because right before the crux, you're not clipped into anything. That is, you've climbed above your last piece of protection. So if you take a fall, you're gonna fall all the way back down to your prior protection spot and then an equal amount past that, right? And it's a pretty big fall. And I I just knew that the chance of me falling is quite high and it's really natural to be afraid of falling, right? I mean, even though you know the rope is gonna catch you. So in facing this last week, part of it was there was a group of people there. So I allowed the social pressure, like they're all curious to see how I'm going to perform. So I'm like, okay, I've got that leaning on me. That's, that's pushing me up. I don't want to be too cowardly, you know, with all these people watching. Um, I also want to accept the possibility of a fall and just remind myself that there is a rope and that it will catch me and that I've fallen before. And I, I kind of did a combination like emotion differentiation, like, yes, I am afraid naturally of falling, which could easily happen on this. And I'm also a little bit excited and curious to see how I'll do. And the truth is I climbed through the hardest moves and it stretched me. I mean, I could feel that I was at my absolute limit trying to make this move. And I reached up, trying to clip the rope in to protect myself. And I fell last Wednesday. I exactly, it was sort of the worst case scenario. Like that was my fear is falling from this exact place. And I did fall and it turned out to be okay. Right. And I realized, oh, I can, I can handle it. And now tomorrow when I go climb and I climb on this same route, I find that I actually have more confidence as a result rather than less. That's very interesting. So, and also just when you're talking about that point, that crux point, how important do you think this idea of mindfulness plays in? Because there's also something to be said that in moments of peak performance, one of the things that can really trip you up is if you overthink a situation too much. Absolutely. I think it's, it's really interesting. So typically in climbing and in many other things, you think of sparring and martial arts, you know, or or something like that, you tend to be in flow, right? Playing chess, like you're not really consciously thinking about it. You're not thinking I'm Rodney and I need to use my left hand in this way. You're just sort of using this like automatic process. It just, there's no difference between you and the activity. And when you do that, you tend to perform well. And as soon as you sort of become self-conscious and start thinking that's where the problems come up. And this is exactly what happened last week. You know, I, I had actually climbed through that hardest move and I was about to pull the rope to the point that I could clip it into a piece of protection. And I was having a little bit of problem doing it. I'd, I'd already done the hardest move. I, I mean, I had physically achieved that, that crux and I was just having a hard time pulling the rope up and that pulled me out of my flow state. And I was like, oh no. And then I started worrying, oh no, if I can't get this, I'm gonna fall. And then I really felt panicked and I was trying to do it quickly and sloppily because I was then afraid of falling. And in fact, I fell. 
Yeah, so there's exactly what I was saying, right? And I just thinking about my own experiences, and I, we we share something in common there too that we you know we both practice martial arts, and I can always reflect on that. So we're talking about sparring as an example when you playing the game with another person. Anytime I've got myself into trouble is that moment in time where I start overthinking the situation, second guessing myself. In essence, having a narrative, a story running inside, right? Just knowing that you're messing up, and then getting down on yourself that you're messing messing up, it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and things just go from, from bad to worse. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, you know, in meditation, they call it the monkey mind, right. Something like this, but, um, in some ways our ability to think consciously is one of the best attributes of, of being human, right? We can plan ahead. We can reflect, we can do these really great thinking strategies but then also when it comes to performance, we want to sometimes be able to put that up on the shelf and just completely be in the moment. Now, some of that is part of modern culture. You know, I did some research, I think, as you know, with Maasai tribal people in Kenya. And I was there for a number of months interviewing them. And one of the questions I would ask is, you know, how frequently do you get angry or, or joyful, you know, these different emotions? And I can remember one man, I said, you know, how frequently do you get angry? He said, oh, never because he kind of viewed anger as a bad thing, but you and I both know he gets angry. And I said, well, no, that's not true, right? You, you get angry sometimes, like, you know, how about, you know, when was the last time you got angry? He said, no, never, I, I was never angry. And I thought, wow, he's just thinking about this in a different way as me. I said, when was the last time you punched someone? He said, oh, yesterday. And I was like, okay, so he's just not thinking about time in the same way or reflecting on his emotions in the same way he's just less self-conscious and it's harder for him to think what happened a year ago or what happened a year from now he's just kind of more in the moment in general and i think that there's there's limits to that but i also think there's a great benefit from that it sounds like he was able to let it go you know, so it's not so much, you know, getting angry, that's the problem, it's how long you carry it that becomes the problem. Because as we've been saying throughout the conversation, any emotion has value, it just depends on how you, you approach it, how you put it into into play in your life. And so it sounds like he was just able to let that go. And that, that's a beautiful place to be. And I think, you know, as you described it, I can see that that would be very powerful and how he sees that emotion completely different to how we possibly define it in the West. It, yeah, it's an interesting idea, isn't it? To think, well, why would you still be concerned about an emotional experience you had for one hour last week? You know, you, you get in a fight with your partner or whatever it is. Why are you holding on to that? Like that, that fight's long since passed and you patched things up. Like, why would you hold on to that? Reminds me of Sapolsky's work where he talks about why zebras don't get ulcers, Right. And so that's really what he's saying is that, you know, the zebra, you know, meets a threat, the lion manages to escape the lion, gets its body back to homeostasis. And then that's it. Of course, it knows in future that lion equals problem. And so when it's confronted with that, again, it's going to make the necessary, you know, emergency changes it needs to in order to evade that predator. But up until then, it's back in you know, it's back in the wilderness and it's grazing as normal. And I think that's where we get it, get ourselves into trouble is that even the smallest things seem to just stick with us. They just stick in our minds over and over. And I think everybody's had that experience where you've had a, a pretty rough day. You've been having this conversation in your head, then you, you let it go. And then suddenly like a couple hours later, it just pops back in your head out of nowhere. 
That's right. And, and to me, that goes back to the crux focus. Like, is this really the big deal or are you holding on to a small deal, right? Because in your relationship at work, there's stuff that's worth complaining about and worth worrying about. But most of the stuff you worry and complain about isn't that. It, it's small stakes. It's relatively easily solvable. It's temporary. We're talking a little bit there about mindfulness. I'd like to get your take on this. We, we, we're in a, what could we call a mindfulness revolution? It, it seems to be everywhere. I have a problem with it in some respects. I mean, I did my research, my doctoral research was on mindfulness, specifically as it relates to leadership performance. So I spent several years really embedded in that world. And one of the things that I noticed was that everybody seems to almost be claiming that mindfulness is a panacea for everything, right? You go, Whatever ailment you have, just be mindful and that will solve it. I'd like to hear your, your view on that because I'm guessing we're going to agree that that's not the way to go. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, you know, I travel in circles. I'm a happiness researcher. I'm friends with Mathieu Richard, pretty famous Buddhist monk. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I hang out in a, a circle of people that really give two thumbs up to mindfulness. I do not have a mindfulness practice. That is to say, I don't meditate daily. In fact, many of the happiness researchers, my colleagues, do not do so either. I totally agree that it can be helpful. And, and I think the data are pretty conclusive about that, that, that it's a great way. It, it's one technique and a formal technique, but it's a great way not to tell a story in your head that's exaggerated, that's black or white. It's a great way just to, to keep yourself in the moment um, and it has a really positive downstream effect on your emotional state. I do think that having a formal meditation practice is not the only way to achieve that. It's one way, and the reason why it's persisted for thousands of years in Buddhism and secular society is because it's effective. But, you know, it's a little bit like diet or exercise. You know, you, you wouldn't just say to someone, you've got to be a martial artist. That's the only form of exercise that's acceptable, right? But you would want someone to have some form of exercise. I, I think that mindfulness is the same way. I, I would want you to have some form of emotion management skill. Mindfulness is certainly one way to get there. Mm. So what I focused on in my research was this idea of how I, it's not my definition. It comes from Tony Schwartz. It was the first place I saw it being used, but I focused on this idea, this concept of mindfulness in action. And I think that really, again, speaks to when we're talking about rock climbing, when you're saying, you know, you're on the ground, you're looking up, you, you're going through a pre-planning phase, right? That's very, very important. And I don't think that you can make those kinds of climbs without doing that. And we know, as you noted, that many really high-level rock climbers are going to apply those same, those same strategies. I think the key is, is that knowing when to switch away from the planning stage and switch over to mindfulness. And that's what I mean by mindfulness in action. In actual fact, this, this uh, coming Friday, I'm talking to security and risk professionals all over the world at a, at a big conference. And that's my point, is that I'm calling it, for them at least, strategic mindfulness because you need to be able to reflect on the past so you don't make those same mistakes in the present. You need to be able to look to the future so that you can preempt and as best as you can and plan accordingly. But in the, I think the thing is where it has the most profound um, effect, mindfulness, is in the moment of performance. And so really the key then is, can I actually like a, like switch over, like a dial? Can I switch over from my normal state of you know planning and 
you know, reflecting on the past and switch into the present when required. And for example, when you're talking about the crux, I would say that that would be the ideal point to move into a mindful state, right? And, that, and if you can, what you've done is you've been mindful in action. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. Uh, I'll give you what I think might be an example of this from a really mundane uh, corner of life. Look, I'm a psychologist and I try and interview almost everyone I come in contact with. So I was once joking with my dentist, you know, that like you're a pretty awful person, right, to be a dentist and you know that you cause people pain and what kind of sadist must you be to be attracted to this. I said, really, how do you do it, though? Because, you know, it's uncomfortable for people. You know, doesn't that, you know, what do you do with your empathy that, that you're, you're causing discomfort. And he said, oh, I, I have a very clear, he didn't use the word mindfulness, but that's what it was. He said, my waiting room is carpeted. And when I'm standing on carpet, there's a human in front of me. So I might shake their hand, I'll welcome them. I can ask about their kids, ask how their day is going. And I really care about them. The second we step onto the, the tile of the examination room, they're just a mouth. They're no longer a human. And all there is before me is the procedure, whether it's root canal or cleaning or filling a cavity, whatever it is, it, the procedure is the only thing that exists. And I'm not worried about, does this mouth have kids or a history or feelings or any of this? And I think that's actually kind of a, a form of this that I thought was pretty interesting, that, that kind of mental switch over. Yeah, totally. I was just thinking you use that word mundane a lot of people listening to this are going to go, well, you know, I'm not going to go rock climbing and, and things like that, but I'd like to apply these things into my life. I think that's the entry point is what we would consider the mundane, the things that we take for granted. What I try to tell everybody when they're asking me for advice is, you know, choose those things that you do every day, every week, the things that, that are occurring for you, but constantly frustrate you and get you irritated. And that is the entry point to put some of these ideas, things like mindfulness, or, you know, labeling your emotions and getting a clearer, you know, kind of idea of where you actually are. That's the time to do it. You don't have to do it in the big things. In actual fact, if people approach it in that way and they take on those small little incremental steps, the things that they can handle, you know, and manage, then when the big things come their way, they would have built up a lot of tools and a lot of confidence to be able to actually do it when, when they really need to, when the threat is or, or the situation you know, in front of them requires them to perform at their best. Absolutely. And I like that you use frustration as an example, because I think that that's a, a common one. If you think about, um, you know, being stuck in traffic, for example, of people live in cities, like that's a really common example. And it's a great opportunity to not get too bent out of shape about the driver who just cut you off or whatever. That's a really small stakes opportunity to just say, I'm a little irritated because the driver did this to me, but I can let that go, or I can just notice that I'm feeling that. Um, and I do think that you're right. You don't want to say, oh, I just found out my spouse is cheating on me, or my parents just passed away, or you, you don't, you don't want to try and start in these huge, overwhelming and intense emotional experiences. You want to build to those. So I know definitely one of the things that I noted earlier that we share is we, we share a martial arts practice. I'm not sure if you still practice, but I'm, I'm still interested to know how that has informed your life and how you approach things because I can put a lot of my ability that I have today and the successes that I have down to my martial arts practice. And that's definitely something that has seen me through some really tough situations, not just in the, in the fight sense, but just in dealing with the chaos of life. Yeah. So I, 
if I had to guess, if you ask that same question to 10 people with a martial arts background, everyone's going to talk about confidence. I mean, there's just something obviously about martial arts that you, whether it's realistic confidence or not, you just feel more capable. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because I think that's sort of the gimme. One thing it really did, um, and I also have a background a little bit when I was younger in dance, um, and dance and martial arts are very similar in that they're very precise technique and that you need to spend a lot of time thinking about your own self, your own body. Am I breathing the right way? Are my shoulders squared? What's my posture like? You know, what's my, how engaged are my muscles? You know, am I striking with this, you know, with the right portion of my fist? You know, what really, really kind of granular approach to reflecting on the physical self. Um, And I think that opened the door to me just to be more self-reflective in general. I'm, I'm just, with, without being a navel gazer or neurotic about myself, I, I do think that I just am, com- am comfortable, and I say this as a man too, right? We're not supposed to be too introspective, right? But it, I really just thought like, oh yeah, like how do I hold myself? How do I comport myself? What is my physical self doing? What's my mental self doing? Um, so I, I would say self-reflection was a great and surprising benefit of martial arts. Yeah, I, I would, I would uh, agree with that. So where you are right now, you know, Robert, with your research, what are the things that you're mostly focusing on now? Because you have a really wide research background. I mean, you know, when I look at what you've done, that, I mean, that's why they call you the Indiana Jones of positive psychology, right? Is that you've done a lot of different things. Where are you right now? And uh, what do you think is important? And maybe even what has changed? Like something that maybe you believed in in the past and you thought that was primary and not so much anymore and kind of which direction are you moving in now? Those are great questions. That's a lot of questions. Yeah, that's um, a lot of questions. Great questions. <laughs> um, so yeah, just real quick on the Indiana Jones bit. I, I think I originally got that title, which I did not give myself, mind you. Um, you know, because I was doing research with Amish farmers or sex workers in Calcutta or, or Maasai tribal people in Kenya. Um, but the truth is, to the extent that I view myself as an Indiana Jones at all, it's not because of where I've been, but because I'm interested in going to the undiscovered places in research. So in psychology and in positive psychology in particular, you find a lot of people congregating to certain research questions. And I've always been attracted to what aren't people asking? Where are the holes in the research? Because I want to help fill them in. So for example, you might be just surprised to know that within all of positive psychology, the study of what goes right with people and human flourishing, no one has ever researched hospitality. And we think of hospitality as an industry, but hospitality is a psychological and social phenomenon. It's an attitude of welcoming for, to others, providing uh, you know, shelter and entertainment to them. And there's not a single research article on it. So I just published on it. You know, I, I went to, uh, got representative samples in 12 different nations and just asked people about their attitudes about hospitality. Do they do hospitality? Do they think it's moral? Is it, if you, if you do have these attitudes, is it related to happiness? It is what makes for good hospitality. Um, and I've been interviewing people all over the world about this, not because I think that, you know, it, it, it's the most groundbreaking thing, but I, I do think that it's quite timely. We, many governments have kind of a, 
build a wall mentality, right? Let's keep out people. There's a lot of xenophobia and a, a lot of, you know, difficulty, like this is my group, you're not part of my group. And I think a welcoming attitude is actually a timely consideration. So hospitality is one area that's been exciting me recently. It's so interesting that you say that because I've been having a conversation this week with my partner and we were just talking about how oftentimes you go into a business and you're going to spend some money there and the people working there clearly don't want to be there. There's no hospitality. Um, and I find that really interesting. You know, it, it, it's just, I guess there's something to be said. I get it that it's not necessarily their business and they don't have a vested interest in it, but they're in the space where they're working with people. And I keep thinking to myself, you know, if you just change your attitude, look, you might not enjoy your job and I get that. But if you changed your attitude about how you treat people, that's going to change how you feel about the experience going to work every day. And so you can actually be in a job that you really dislike, but you can actually still enjoy the experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, and hospitality can just happen in so many places and it can happen in the workplace. Think about oh, there's a new hire and I'm going to be the one to show them around. I mean, that's a form of hospitality. I'm welcoming you into my space. I'm, I'm you know, teaching you about how things work here, um, entertaining you to some degree. It, it can happen, of course, in your home. I think it can happen more largely in society. I did a, um, an interview recently with a woman from Zambia and she's from a, a tribal group in Zambia. And she said, Part of our hospitality tradition is offering this particular drink to people, but the drink is a fermented drink and it takes about three days to make. So if you wanted to be hospitable, you would have to plan three days in advance. But what if someone just drops by? You need to have that fermentation going. And so her take was, we always have it going. We're always ready for hospitality. It's sort of like being prepared to welcome someone else. And I just thought that was such a great metaphor. That's beautiful. Totally. So as we come to the end of this, Robert, leave us with some words of wisdom. What would you want people to take away? What do you think is really important for people to be focusing on right now? And I think it's timely considering where the world is and what's happening. I can give you a, a few, you know, resilience has been a buzzword, right? We've got this global pandemic on, um, at least here in the United States, Black Lives Matters and, and social discord is a, a huge issue. There's this kind of um, rise in authoritarian governments around the world. I mean, it, it feels like there's environmentalism. I mean, there's these really pressing, pressing issues. And so people have been talking about resilience. How can you be resilient against all of these you know, ills? And Fundamentally, I think that's an okay way to think, but resilience is always by definition a reaction to something. And so I think more in terms of presilience, right? You know that three months from now, there's some bad stuff happening. So I, I think in the United States, for example, I'm just gonna tell you my own context, we had a major you know, societal lockdown and now we've expanded, but all the health officials are telling us in a couple of months, we're going to have another big wave of COVID. Mm. And I think, well, I don't want to be resilient to that. I want to prepare for that now. So one of the things I learned in the first lockdown is I don't have a good home gym. I don't have a good way to, to work out necessarily in bad weather months. So I want to prepare for that bad time ahead, knowing that it will almost certainly come by thinking I'm going to build a good home gym, even if that just means getting up a couple pieces of equipment that I can put on my porch 
I'm doing things with my wife, like we're purposefully not watching certain TV shows and movies so that if we do get locked in again, we'll have those available to us. So we won't be wondering like, oh, what are we going to watch? So we're trying to use the good weather months to get out and really like craft a, a, a repository of, of good things for the for for later down the road. So the idea of planning planning ahead for misfortune without worrying about it or dwelling on it. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.